Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. So, Chris, after a strong month of July, Coolabar's strategies continue to perform quite robustly in August, driven by ongoing mean reversion in the credit spreads of key portfolio positions including both bank bonds and government bonds. The month was nonetheless a tale of two halves. Over the first 16 days, US equities soared 4.5% before accounting for dividends. And yet in the second half, the S&P 500 slumped a stunning 8.1%, closing below 4,000 index points. Yes, seeing as this was primarily driven by the market successfully anticipating a hawkish pivot by the world's most important central bank, the US Federal Reserve, which was delivered via a hard-hitting opening address from the Fed's chair, Jay Powell, at the annual Jackson Hole Conference on August 26. Powell signaled that the Fed could lift rates by another supersized 75 basis points at its next meeting in September, subject to future data flows, and reiterated that its central case was a terminal cash rate just shy of 4%. That's right, Chris. And Powell further reinforced the perspective that crushing both elevated core consumer price pressures and inflation expectations was the Fed's paramount priority, even if that came at the cost of a recession without explicitly articulating this trade-off. Coolabar's models have been forecasting a US recession since the start of the year. The message was that aggressive interest rate increases today will spare the economy much greater pain in the future if inflation were to become even more entrenched. This is a narrative that most developed world central banks, including the RBA, are now spinning, which optically provides political cover through collective action. Yes, seeing as while Coolabar has argued for over a decade that the post-GFC policy reflexes of QE to infinity and zero rates in response to every shock would ultimately propagate a regime-changing inflationary cycle, we have been surprised by one feature of the current episode, and that is how massive interest rate increases in the name of price stability have suddenly become politically popular. The multi-decade peak in inflation has understandably created profound community concerns around cost of living constraints, which voters have in turn blamed on the government of the day. This attribution is in part a function of the extreme fiscal stimulus governments decided to inject into their economy to mitigate the pandemic, combined with the widespread lockdown imposed on populations that then created supply chain blockages. Expedient politicians have unsurprisingly sought to shift the crosshairs onto their central banks, which, after all, typically have the legislative responsibility for assuring price stability. Now, most central bankers have spent the last 20 to 30 years of their careers growing how the inflation-targeting policy paradigm first embraced in the early 1990s, has furnished the long period of low and stable inflation that has characterized economic conditions up until the one in 100 year pandemic materialized. Yes, Chris. And the ensuing surge in consumer price inflation has absolutely been an artifact of a perfect storm of temporary demand and supply side influences. But with politicians eagerly opening the door to central banks furnishing their inflation-fighting credentials, the monetary policy mandarins have embraced that opportunity. This helps explain the recent experience with seemingly coordinated jumbo rate increases across Western central banks. With many of the supply-side pressures, for example, oil prices, freight prices, timber prices, delivery times, etc., etc., abating and demand starting to deteriorate, the risk is that central banks hike too far in the name of fighting last year's battle. The ongoing casualties are likely to be asset prices and economic growth. In the month of August, floating rate bond strategies outperformed their fixed rate counterparts, 
whereas the Osmond floating rate note index returned 35 basis points. The fixed rate Osmond Composite Bond Index lost 254 basis points after a stellar prior month of July when it returned 336 basis points. The poor performance of fixed rate bonds was explained by the jump higher in long-term interest rates before and after the Fed's hawkish pivot, with Australia's 10-year government bond yield climbing sharply from 3.06% to 3.6% over August i.e. by about 54 basis points. Note that this is still significantly below the 4.2% peak that Aussie 10-year yields touched in June. Coolabar's RBA cash plus 150 basis point strategy, the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund, returned 49 basis points gross, or 43 to 45 basis points net in August, while our long duration or fixed rate active composite bond strategy managed to outperform the index by 15 basis points gross or 13 basis points net. Note that as always, past performance is no guide to future returns and investors should always read the product PDS to better understand its risks. In August, senior ranking bank paper performed with five-year major bank senior spreads compressing from 95 basis points above the quarterly bank bill swap rate to 84 basis points based on Coolabar's Constant Maturity Index. Tier 2 performed even more strongly, with five-year major bank spreads plunging sharply from 263 basis points to 235 basis points. Note that Coolabar has been an aggressive buyer of these. One notch further down the capital structure, the ASX-listed hybrid market also experienced reasonable spread compression, five-year major bank spreads contracting from 308 basis points to 296 basis points over the month. August also saw an extension of very firm bank buying of state or semi-government bonds, Indeed, sell-side researchers have belatedly caught up to Coolabar's analysis last year, which revealed for the first time that Aussie banks will have to buy between $315 and $570 billion of government bonds to fill an emerging regulatory liquidity hole that grows quickly between 2022 and 2024. Coolabar showed that this hole was created by a range of complex factors, including the 2022 closure of the $140 billion committed liquidity facility, which we forecast ahead of other analysts, banks repaying the RBA the $188 billion it lent them under the term funding facility, the maturity of government bonds off the RBA's balance sheet, ongoing bank balance sheet growth, which fuels additional liquidity needs, the need to maintain bank liquidity coverage ratios around 130%, contrary to silly claims that banks could just slash their LCRs to 125%, and the likelihood that modelled net cash outflows that underpin the LCR calculations would not decline, as some bank traders alleged in response to our analysis. More than 11 months after we had published our numbers, NAB belatedly estimated the HQLA demand to be $300 billion. Other banks have tendered similar estimates, including UBS, pointing to a $275 to $375 billion hole, and ANZ and CBA, whose analysts have proposed a $250 to $300 billion hole using excessively low or optimistic LCR assumptions. Since banks typically spend 70% of their HQLA capital on semis, Coolabar's HQLA hole estimates imply buying demand of between $220 and $440 billion over the next few years, juxtaposed against annual semi-supply of only circa 60 to 70 billion. As we've long asserted, floating rate cash is once again proving to be the best possible inflation hedge. Do you remember where interest rates were the last time we had a bout of inflation? In the late 1990s, they got to 17%. In fact, we established Coolabar in 2011, over a decade ago now, as a floating rate specialist precisely to cater for a world 
in which interest rates were likely to eventually rise in response to our predicted period of very high inflation. And Chris, the RBA has clearly signaled that it will continue to hike rates to quell the current bout of elevated inflation and all important consumer inflation expectations, which have drifted up, with financial markets now pricing in a peak RBA cash rate around 3.6%. In August, the RBA lifted its cash rate by 50 basis points to 1.85%, which was then succeeded by an unprecedented fourth consecutive 50 basis point rate increase in September as the cash rate rose further to 2.35%. This notably places the cash rate close to the midpoint of the RBA's target inflation band, which indicates that after controlling for the RBA's long-term forecast inflation rate of 2-3%, the cash rate will be close to zero in real or inflation-adjusted terms. Since current core and headline inflation in Australia have been running at 6.1% and circa 4.6% respectively, the RBA's cash rate is still deeply negative in real inflation-adjusted terms compared to consumer price movements over the last 12 months. The 225 basis points of cash rate increases, with undoubtedly more to come, are the biggest interest rate shock Australian borrowers have had to wear since the mid-1990s. Yet back then, the ratio of household debt to incomes was only 80% or a fraction of the current 187% ratio. On Coolabar's modelling, the increase in household indebtedness has been so great in recent times that an RBA cash rate of 3.5% would be similar to the 6-7% to cash rate that existed before the GFC in terms of the share of incomes that households have to sacrifice to repay both the principal and interest on their debt. And Chris... As the RBA's Governor Phil Lowe has acknowledged, there are a range of profound uncertainties that currently confront monetary policy. The RBA does not know where the true neutral cash rate lies and will ultimately be guided by the economy's reaction after the long and variable lags between interest rate changes and their effects over many years. The RBA equally does not know where the natural unemployment rate rests and has highlighted that current wage growth in Australia, using the compositionally adjusted wage price index measure, remains modest at 2.6% and well below the growth in labour incomes evidenced in countries like the US. It is also below the 3-4% pace the RBA has claimed is required to generate sustainable inflation within its target 2-3% band. While these known unknowns are important, the RBA also does not know how much of the current high inflationary episode is attributable to temporary supply-side factors that will pass and could, in theory, be overlooked, as distinct from more fundamental demand-side drivers that are artefacts of the extreme fiscal and monetary policy stimulus that central banks and treasuries poured over their economies in response to the pandemic. The RBA is further more or less in the dark about the impact of the adverse wealth effects flowing from what will probably be the biggest housing correction in history, a topic that we will return to shortly. After undershooting the lower bound of its target inflation ban for much of Governor Phil Lowe's first term, badly mishandling the exit from its yield curve targeting policy in 2021, and then imposing enormous interest increases on borrowers in 2022, after de facto promising in 2020 and 2021 not to hike until 2024, the RBA has come in for some heavy criticism. We think it's fair to critique the RBA for its sanguine initial assessment of the pandemic in late Feb, early March 2020, delays in its subsequent decisioning, for example, QE deferred until NOV 2020, and for the manner in which it suddenly dumped the yield curve targeting policy, which was a reputational disaster as the RBA has conceded. Having said that, the commendable suite of pandemic policy responses that were ultimately implemented and the outstanding economic recovery that followed as a consequence are something that the RBA can certainly claim some credit for. 
The RBA and Treasury were right to take out aggressive insurance on the extreme downside risk presented by the pandemic, which is what Coolabar publicly and privately argued in February and early March 2020 was the policy choice of least regret. A counterfactual involving any further policy inertia could have been catastrophic. And the RBA should be applauded for focusing on obtaining full employment, which it appears to have helped deliver after many years of failing to do so. We also agree that it is appropriate to promptly normalise policy to mitigate against the possibility of consumer expectations becoming unmoored, which the RBA has done, although reasonable people can debate where the neutral rate lies. The government's looming broad-based review of the RBA could focus on a range of specific matters, including the inherent contradiction between repeatedly telling the public the RBA does not know where the neutral cash rate lies, and then at the same time claiming it's above 2.5%. The relentless claim the RBA is on no preset path while it hikes rates four times consecutively at 50 bips per meeting or by a total of 225 bips over five meetings in a clearly deterministic trajectory. The error in the RBA's statements following its board meeting when it asserted it was taking a, quote, further step in the withdrawal of the extraordinary monetary support that was put in place to help the Aussie economy during the pandemic, close quote, when the cash rate prior to this statement was, in fact, above its pre-pandemic level. The seemingly heavy reliance on forecasts for inflation, unemployment, wages and growth to justify hikes when those forecasts have proven to be highly unreliable. The alternative would, of course, be far greater data dependence. The apparent analytical indifference to the spectre of a profound regime change in the economy's elasticity to rate hikes given the huge increase in household debt. This has been manifest in the RBA cherry-picking data to support the notion that households, really rich households, will be able to comfortably bear these enormous interest rate increases. The RBA's historical revisionism and persistent lack of intellectual humility when it comes to policy errors, which seems to be compounded by an extraordinarily insular and tenure-based culture that is riddled with groupthink. And finally, the absence of any sense of accountability given the RBA's ostensibly weak board, which it normally controls, and the power the RBA exercises over the media that is frequently beholden to it for insights and policy leaks. And Chris, moving on to another topic. Since 2019, Coolabar has been warning about the rise of zombie companies kept alive by perpetually cheap money in the period following the GFC. The worry is that as interest rates now normalise, many of these zombies could fail to survive, creating waves of corporate defaults, the likes of which have not been seen since the 1991 recession in Australia and during the GFC in the US. We have therefore updated our quantitative zombie detection models to cover both Australia and the US. And we have stress tested some of the definitions of of what is and is not a zombie. The standard definition for a zombie is a company that meets two tests. One, it has existed for more than 10 years. And two, it has an interest coverage ratio or ICR of less than one for three years in a row. The ICR is defined as the ratio of the company's earnings before interest and tax, otherwise known as EBIT, relative to the interest, note not principal, repayments on the debt. If the firm's ICR is less than one, it is not earning sufficient income to repay the interest due on its debt, hence the, quote, zombie moniker. Using this definition, years, Coolabar finds that over 13% of all ASX firms are actually zombies, which is slightly above the number of zombies we've found in the US, where we estimate that just under 10% of all US companies qualify as zombies. Note that our US analysis includes all NYSE and NASDAQ listings. Constraining these zombies by age does not seem to make a great deal of sense. 
Just because you're a young, high-growth firm, if you're not generating sufficient profit to service your debts, you are still technically a zombie. So in our first adjustment, we remove the minimum 10-year age criterion and simply focus on all firms that have reported ICRs less than one for three years in a row. In Australia, an incredible 34% of all ASX companies would be classified as zombies as judged by their inability to produce sufficient EBIT to cover their interest repayments. This is up from the 13% of zombies we estimated when imposing a minimum 10-year age requirement. In the US, there is also a jump in the market share of zombies from 9.6% to 18.9% once we remove the age criterion. As a final exercise, Chris, we classify companies as zombies using the data from their last financial year alone, as opposed to requiring them to have ICRs less than one for three years in succession. Using this definition, the zombie share rises further to 39% in Australia and 37% in the US. After identifying the zombies, we then studied their propagation across both industry sectors and by size or market capitalization. This analysis reveals that zombies tend to be small to medium-sized companies. They are also found in greater numbers in the technology, energy, healthcare, real estate, and materials industry sectors. One final point is that if you distribute firms by their ICRs, you find that there are a lot of very risky zombies contrasted against a significant number of incredibly low-risk firms and not as much in between. It seems that in the corporate world, you're either a good guy or a bad guy. Or maybe what we're saying is that there are a lot of deep value stocks and also loads of junk like growth wannabes. Given the outlook for interest rates, it's hard to imagine that there will be much global growth for the next year or two. Recessions are much more likely. This has implications for markets. As interest rates continue to climb, we are likely to see the first interest rate-led default cycle in Australia since 1991. In the early 1990s, ANZ and Westpac almost went bankrupt because of their loan exposures to commercial property. Since the 91 recession, we've also seen a big increase in non-bank lenders, many of whom provide finance to zombies, particularly real estate zombies. And these are companies that don't have the risk management experience of lending during the 91 recession, during the tech wreck, or even the GFC. Whereas highly rated bond markets, specifically triple B through to triple A rated securities have generally repriced substantially and are trading on credit spreads that in some sectors are starting to look quite cheap compared to historical benchmarks. The high yield and sub-investment grade debt markets and private credit still appear quite rich. And Chris, as one example, consider the credit spreads on US high yield bonds rated B and double B. These spreads remain well inside the much wider levels that emerged in prior shocks, including 2020, 2015 to 2016, 2011 to 12. 2008 and 2002. We have developed and utilized automated global high yield bond default forecasting models, and they are pointing to a substantial increase in high yield defaults. Our US recession forecasting models are likewise signaling a strong likelihood of a US recession, as they've been doing for many months. All this means that high yield spreads are likely to have to move a lot higher, crushing many of their zombie companies. Another market where you are likely to find zombies is Aussie housing, where about half of all borrowers are not more than one month ahead on their mortgage repayments. Yeah, there's a little doubt about that, Yingers. Aussie home value is now shrinking at an annualised rate that exceeds 15% based on the three months of CoreLogic compositionally adjusted index data to the 10th of September. In Australia's largest city, Sydney, the annual pace of house price depreciation measured on a rolling quarterly basis has stabilised at a hefty 22% loss since late August. Property values in the nation's second largest metropolis, Melbourne, are falling at a 14% annualised cliff, while the two biggest cities have led what is bound to become a record housing correction since the RBA started lifting rates in in May 2022, there is nascent evidence that the third largest city, Brisbane, 
is quickly catching up. In the month of August, Sydney home values tumbled by 2.3%, the worst monthly loss since the early 1980s. Brisbane property suffered a similar fate, plunging 1.9% in August, which was the poorest monthly outcome since records began 40 years ago in 1980. Over the first 10 days of September, the speed at which Brisbane dwelling prices are contracting has slightly exceeded the drawdown realised in Sydney. In the month today, Brisbane home values have dropped by a chunky 0.51%, a shade worse than the 0.46% retrenchment registered in Sydney. Sydney home values have now fallen by about 8% from their recent peak based on data covering the period to September 10, according to CoreLogic. The Melbourne market is maintaining a circa 1% per month rate of house price declines, with peak-to-trough losses passing through the 5% mark in September. Across Australia's capital cities, cumulative house price losses should also breach 5% this month. That's right, Chris. And while these developments might come as a surprise, they've been highly predictable, as we explained last year. And our October 2021 housing forecasts remain unchanged. That is, after the RBA implements its first 100 basis points of rate hikes, which it has now done, national home values will fall 15 to 25%. This forecast range was quite explicitly designed to capture the RBA hiking rates by more than 100 basis points. Most economists have embraced this projection in 2022. Using the RBA's own internal housing model, we have previously shown that if the central bank hikes to a very extreme 4.25% cash rate, which is higher than we allowed in our forecast range, the RBA's research implies that Aussie house prices would have to decline by 30 to 40%. This is not, however, our central forecast. That's a wrap, guys. Thanks for tuning in to listen to Chris and I. Please listen to the disclaimer at the end and wishing you guys a very good week ahead. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.